Chris, good to meet you, mate. You too. Can I buy you a beer, can I? Yeah, sure, mate. That'd be good. Cheers. Cheers. Good to meet you. This is an interesting blind date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had worse. Hi, I'm Angus Grigg, a reporter with the Australian Financial Review in Sydney, and this is episode seven of our six-part podcast, The Sure Thing, sponsored by McGrath Nickel. After wrapping up what should have been the sixth and final episode, our story progressed. As with John from episode five and Jason from episode six, someone else came forward. But before we get stuck in, let me remind you of where we left Chris. He had been living with his folks in Mornington, the sleepy beachside suburb on the outskirts of Melbourne, as he sought to re-enter the workforce. I started out, you know, applying for lots of different places in, in different industries. And I, I was, you know, I was reasonably successful in, in getting quite a few interviews, you know, in person, over the phone. I had put it in my mind uh, for a long time that I wasn't going to try and hide it in any way so I was just straight up with them and um, you know then that was a fairly short conversation and uh, you, you know you don't hear back from them after that. So rather than putting in all the hard work preparing for interviews Chris began owning up to his criminal background in his cover letter. He sent out at least 20 applications and got zero callbacks. It's a fate he was forced to accept. I just got um pretty disheartened and, and gave up for a while. If I was looking to hire someone, if they didn't have the best, most outstanding resume I'd ever seen in my life, and they had a record, I probably wouldn't hire them. As a business owner, why would you take that risk? While Clinton Free, our white-collar crime expert, didn't agree with the sentiment, in episode six, he spoke of it as a societal failing. If someone has gone through criminal justice process, received a lengthy sentence, is our position that that punishment should go for the rest of the person's life? Because that is by default the current position. If that's as a society what we're happy with, I think that's what we've ended up with. Chris eventually found work at a family friend's building company and moved out of his parents' house. But he remained an ex-con, keeping a low profile. Having built a relationship with Clinton, Chris began speaking to MBA students about his offending and life behind bars. As we heard in episode one, that was still a far cry from going on the record with a journo and doing a deep dive into your own reckless stupidity. Why would anyone willingly submit themselves to the sharp glare of the media? What good could possibly come from it? Before I pass over to the panel, I'd just like to acknowledge Chris Hill, who thankfully has travelled from Melbourne to be with us today and share his story. At a recent event looking into fraud and white-collar crime, put on by our sponsor McGrath Nickel, here is Chris, now a little more accustomed to the process, speaking with moderator Sally Patton and pushing his story back out into the world. So how long did it take you before you agreed to tell it publicly? I was pretty hesitant to go forward with it, but... I suppose Angus wore me down in the end. <laughs> <laughs> he does that. Yeah. I started to see the, the potential benefits of it, not just for me personally, but if I can, you know, do something with, you know, with, with Angus and, and Clinton that benefits other people who may be in the same sort of position as I was in. And if we can make them think twice 
or three times about what they're about to do rather than when I was in that, in that position and, and really didn't put nearly as much thought into it uh, as I should have. Chris Hill, speaking publicly about the crime and its consequences. I believe this is one of the best ways for organisations to educate their employees. That's Matt Fian, a former police officer and partner with McGrath Nickel, who plans to utilise Chris and his story to run ethics and fraud seminars. I think it's a tremendous deterrence hearing Chris's story. I do believe um, everyone deserves a second chance, particularly if they've served the time. For me personally, it's a good outlet for me to, to talk about it because it's something that I've probably, to some extent, held in. So I think this has actually been quite a beneficial process for me. Clinton agrees that talking about it has helped Chris better understand his behaviour. I think very much so. And I think there, there is probably a therapeutic aspect of telling a story. I know Maya Angelou said something like, there's no, no pain or burden as great as an untold story. And I think... That the act of actually telling the story for, for Chris probably is part of coming to grips with it and, and, and reflecting on it and learning from it as well. Do you think he can now put this behind him and maybe move on with the next part of his life? I hope that is the case, that this process has played a, a, a modest role in getting that, that story out. What I've witnessed over the last couple of years is growing confidence around talking about this. I think the fact that he takes full ownership for what happened um, really helps him in doing that. But I, I see a much more sort of thoughtful set of reflections about about what happened and some of the, the drivers and, and, and a great willingness to, to talk. And I think it's quite brave for someone who's gone through this process to come out the other side and be willing to talk about it. It's that element of taking full ownership that is most important in this final part of our story. From the moment the AFP beat on his door on that cold Canberra morning, to pleading guilty in court, to his subsequent job applications, and all through this podcast, Chris has taken ownership of his deeds. He never blamed others or cast off responsibility. Even when I pushed him on Lucas's betrayal, he never accepted it or threw Lucas under the bus. It's this ownership, his honesty and remorse, that caught the attention of Joel Murphy, director at foreign exchange broker 8CAP, and the erstwhile compliance officer from Pepperstone. He wanted to meet Chris. Yes, that's the same Joel Murphy who first made the link between Lucas's giant trades and an employee at the ABS. Yeah, hello. Um, I was just wondering if you could put me through to Christopher Hill. He's the person who called Chris, claiming to be a university student with a ruse about doing an assignment. Do you remember the call? No, not at all. You don't remember it? No. I thought he was bullshitting when he told me. Having linked Chris and Lucas via Facebook, Joel's phone call was the final piece of evidence he needed before ringing ASIC. We only chatted for probably three or four minutes or something, and then the next day, that's when I I reported it. Yeah. I I was surprised because um, I'm just surprised they put me through. Like, it was a random... I just called up, like, the switchboard and I said, Christopher Hill, can you transfer me through? And they went, yes. (laughs) The backstory here is that Joel has always felt a little awkward about his role in Chris's arrest and subsequent imprisonment, especially given the scale of Lucas's betrayal. Like, I, I probably felt a tinge of guilt. I don't really think twice about it anymore. It doesn't... Um, There's no point, really. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't do me any good thinking back on it, so... As the podcast progressed, it was that guilt which promoted Joel to contact us and organise a meet-up with Chris. A few weeks back, they met up at the Mail Exchange Hotel 
in Melbourne's CBD. We gave them a couple of beers and some space. Is Lucas going to say anything at all in the future or is he just going to sort of I don't, go? I don't believe so. I saw him randomly, like I was at a, I was at a bar in somewhere and he just, um, I heard all this honking and I turned around and he was like waving out <laughs> his car and then just drove off. But apart from that, I haven't seen him. After the usual nervous chit-chat, Joel got down to the reason he wanted to meet Chris. I wanted to actually see if um, there was any interest coming back to work in financial services, if, if we could have a chat down the line in the next few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we've got a couple of roles at 8CAP. They'd probably be beneath you at the moment, but um, in risk management and operations, and I was chatting to Angus, and I just thought that, um, you know, if you wanted to restart that part of your career, I'd, I'd love to help you. Oh, that'd be, that'd be great. I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd like to, love to have a chat about it, yeah. 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 All right, perfect. Well, let's let this play out for another week or two and just come back to my office at some stage and, and sit down and have a chat there. Yeah, no, that'd be good, yeah. Chris told us later he didn't want the job offer with Joel's firm 8CAP to be made out of guilt. I said to him as well, I, I, I don't want it to be about a, a guilt thing either, you know, so I don't want a, a pity job. It's great uh, that, you know, there are people out there who are willing to kind of explore those opportunities. I'll certainly always always take up the opportunity to, to have a chat and uh, if it leads somewhere, that's great. And, and if, if, if it's not a fit, then... Um, so be it. Joel says his motivation for giving Chris a job was not so much guilt, but a belief his career had suffered enough. He's a very intelligent man. He's really good with numbers. Um, he hasn't lost any of that ability. He just hasn't been using it in the current role that he's been doing. So I think if um, we can ease him in, I'm very confident with our compliance set up that there's no real risk of him having any detrimental effect on a business. And from a personal level, I know that he's never going to get in trouble for the rest of his life, maybe outside of a, a speeding vine or having a little bit too much to drink in a bar. So he's a normal bloke and, um, yeah, I think he's, he's due for a second chance. You know, I think Joel was, I won't say nervous, but I think apprehensive maybe. I don't know. He just felt that him having that sort of initial contact with ASIC, you know, perhaps wasn't sure exactly how I'd sort of react to that. I think we spoke briefly about that guilt and I I sort of said, well, there's nothing, you know, from my point of view that you should sort of feel, you know, that way inclined. As for me meeting him, you know, I, I didn't really think twice about it. Joel and Chris have agreed to keep talking about a potential job, our own catch-me-if-you-can moment. Frank. Would you be interested in working with the FBI's Financial Crimes Unit? If it works out, Chris would ironically be helping Joel spot those trying to defraud his brokerage. What I hope is in, in sort of 10 years' time, he can turn around and be in the same position he wanted to be in, even though he's gone through all this drama. And, and if he works for 8CAT for a number of years or for 10 years, I think we can um, kickstart his career again. Um, because, yeah, as I said, it'd be a waste if he doesn't use his brain in his job and, he, and he's not making use of that talent. And I think um, we'll probably get him for a bit cheaper than the market rate, which is, you know, also a benefit for 8CAP. But um, I think uh, he can uh, build his career with us and we can, we can have um, something mutually that's beneficial to both. So it's a matter of watch this space. The ball is rolling. A second chance has been offered. And can we expect to see Chris on the speaking circuit, even doing TED Talks? Well, he's not exactly embracing the limelight, but he's certainly becoming more confident in telling his story. I suppose I'm getting a bit used to it now. Having done it a few times, you tend to get the same sort of questions 
that come up again and again. I think it's still quite personal, I suppose, because it's it's always obviously a different a different audience and a different environment. But I suppose the the answers kind of become a bit easier. And what's been the reaction to the podcast? Generally been very good. Certainly haven't had any negative impacts from it, which which has been good. Friends and family have all um, gotten behind it. People just like the fact that there's no bullshit. It's just the fact that I'm just kind of telling it how it is and not um, not trying to you know sensationalize things uh, just telling it in the way that happened so Clinton how do you think Chris has been received on the podcast I think Chris's voice is a really important one in the public sphere and I've actually had a few colleagues reach out to me from right across the country to talk about how they've integrated bits of the podcast into they're teaching about ethics and, and risk management and the idea of a second chance in society. You know, what's appropriate punishment in a case like this? And it's a complex case. So they're all big, big questions. And, and I think this story gives us a platform to talk about them in really productive ways. Chris's landing point, which is about the need to take time to think through things, is really at the heart of ethical decision-making. It's Ethics 101, the need to self-reflect, think about consequences, who's going to be affected. And I think it's a great platform to, to think about those issues. What about looking further ahead? Is there a better way that we can deal with fraud, white-collar crime, insider trading? That's a really big question. And I think the answer to it is yes. I think for one thing, what we have seen is a growth in technology which offers some promise to help us identify and detect um, fraud, insider trading going forward. I think the way that we punish people probably needs to be thought through and the idea that we put people in prison I think is really important but giving people you know, long custodial sentences is very costly on the public purse and, and the reality is if you want to make someone a criminal that's probably the best way to do it. So is there is there more creative ways that we can think about punishment? Um, and again, there's going to be no votes in that. It's not going to be it's not going to be popular, but I think that's part of it. And thirdly, the idea of just having stories to tell, to have conversations about ethics, to have conversations about decision making in our schools and our universities and our organizations. That's another really promising way that we can start to think a bit more about this. Well, thank you, Clinton. That's probably a nice note to leave it on. Thanks for your participation in the podcast. I've certainly had fun. I think we've shared a few things, a road trip, uh, an apartment, gone through and uh, done the interviews with Chris and then seen the story develop. So thank you for being part of it. How, How have you found it? I've known Chris for a few years now, so it's been wonderful to see some new developments in the story and and new twists as we went through Beechworth and through to Melbourne um, and also the new voices that have come forward and and new perspectives and there's some beautiful ellipse in the story I think that we see Chris get offered a new opportunity after he's been held accountable in in a proportional way for for what he did so I think that rounds out the story nicely um, of course, it would be great to hear Lucas's perspective on this, um, and, and one day we might hear it. Well, let's hope so. So thank you, Clinton. Thank you for 
everyone else who has listened to this podcast over the last seven episodes. And I guess this is the end unless Lucas changes his mind. So Lucas, if you're listening, let's have a chat. The Sure Thing is brought to you by the Australian Financial Review and sponsored by McGrath Nickel, Australia's leading forensic investigations and cyber firm. It was presented and written by myself, Angus Grigg, produced and edited by LapFan, script editing by Colin Delaney, technical production by David McMillan, Cormac Lally, Tim Mummery and Margaret Gordon. Graphics by Michaela Pollock and with thanks to nine news librarians, Georgina Jannings and Marianne Zachnick. Additional thanks to Sydney University Business School and Professor Clinton Free. The Sure Thing was overseen by the AFR's digital editor, Fiona Buffini, and head of audio for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Tom McKendrick. If you want to know more, head over to afr.com slash thesurething. There you'll find links to every episode, as well as stories, photos and background information on Australia's largest insider trading case. You'll also find subscriber links for Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Wherever you're listening, please rate and review us as this helps others find us. At The Financial Review, we investigate the big stories about markets, business and power. If you like the sure thing and want more of this kind of journalism, subscribe at afr.com slash subscribe. Subscribe.